Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you from no longer stormy and cold Pleasant Grove, just slightly cold Pleasant Grove. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I don't ever have anything exciting. Nashville's Nashville's Nashville. Don't don't associate me with the music industry here. Not me. I'm just here because my family's <laughs> close by. Steve Edwards. Hello from a very, very smoky, so bad you can't go out of your house, Portland area due to wildfires. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm Charles Max Wood from DevChat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that's Valery Karpov. Hi, everyone. Coming to you live from sunny and hot Miami Beach, Florida. You know, there are days that I just hate people from places like Miami Beach. <laughs> it's, it's cold here. Hey, folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you, and that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full stack developers who can do C Sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. Anyway, you want to remind people who you are? We've had you on like four episodes, I think. Plus one. Yeah, this is, this is my fifth episode. I was also on JavaScript or my JavaScript story. Let's see here. Well, you might know me best as the maintainer of Mongoose, the uh, the popular ODM for Node.js and MongoDB, which is the topic of this this episode. I'm also a principal engineer at a tech startup called Booster Fuels. I guess I don't think we're really a startup anymore. Raised we're well into our Series C round, but we do gas delivery in the Bay Area and Dallas Fort Worth, primarily now to fleet. So if you run uh, if you run like a landscaping company, you have a bunch of employees with Ford F-150s. You park overnight, we come and fill up your gas, your F-150s gas tanks and everyone else's. And I'm also a blogger, thecodebarbarian.com and masteringjs.io. Nice. I don't think I've heard of masteringjs. I just started that about a year ago. Kind of like it's aimed to be kind of shorter, more bite-sized tutorials that also rank uh-huh. better on Google. I found like in Code Barbarian, when I was blogging on the CodeBarbarian.com, I found that kind of the blog posts that like got the most traffic and the most positive feedback were kind of like shorter, more bite-sized ones that kind of attacked some more basic topics as opposed to like the really critical thought pieces where I was, uh, where I really put a lot of effort in. So I started thinking maybe I should start like uh, start a different blog where I'm writing more about like, okay, these are kind of common questions that people are asking. Let me put out like a good answer for it. So I don't have to refer back to kind of questionable stack overflow answers every time I have this question. So you send out Mastering JS Weekly? Is that you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I get that. Good stuff. Oh, you're on it? Nice. Awesome. Excellent. I'm on it like sticky on tape. <laughs> I appreciate it. Did you like the Trello email for the headless apps? Oh, yeah. I saw that. I haven't had too much chance to dig into it. But uh, yeah, I did see that. It looked interesting. Oh, yeah. You should check that out. It's, I think it's one of the best emails I've written recently. Awesome. Well, let's let's dive in and talk about Mongoose. Now, we have had Joe Carlson from MongoDB on a couple of times. And last time he talked about MongoDB. So assume that our listeners have listened to or maybe they hit pause, went, downloaded that episode again and listened to it again. And they have an idea of what MongoDB is and how to think about setting up a schema. How, how does Mongoose fit into this mess? 
So Mongoose is an ODM, kind of like an ORM equivalent for MongoDB. It uses the MongoDB Node.js driver under the hood, but it adds a lot of functionality on top of it that you would expect from an ORM. Think like schema validation, plugins, middleware. Yeah, that's all those things that you would expect from like an active record. Mongoose provides that for Node.js and MongoDB. The big difference, though, between kind of like an ODM and MongoDB terms versus an ORM and conventional SQL is that Mongoose doesn't really transform the data for you in terms of how it's stored in MongoDB. So if you have like, say, a, an object in active record, what the object looks like in Ruby is going to probably gonna be pretty different from what's actually stored in the database. So you'll have a bunch of different tables and uh, one object goes into a bunch of different tables. With Mongoose, you have a model. And the uh, the structure of your model matches the uh, the data that's in your database. So that's something that addresses kind of one of the big criticisms of ORMs, which is trying to figure out what the hell the ORM is doing to your data and how it's storing it in the database. Okay, so ORM, ODM, we got some other yeah. acronyms in there. What's all that? ORM, Object Relational Mapping, ODM, Object Document Mapping. So a document in MongoDB is like the fundamental unit of what you store. You can think of a document as just like a JavaScript object, basically. So it can have um, it can have arrays, it can have nested objects. It doesn't necessarily line up with kind of like the rows and columns layout that you expect from SQL. So wasn't there an OMG in there too, or was that? <laughs> and a WTF and a BBQ <laughs> and a WTF. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, yeah, of course, I've been reading uh, Brandon Sanderson's The Stormlight Archives, and they wind up facing Odium, which is the villain in that. That's what I keep hearing. So <laughs> anyway, good You're going to have to anyway. send me that book. I want to, uh, I want to read it now. <laughs> I is guess that, that be one brings... of your picks? What was that? Is that going to be one of your picks? Or are we still doing Yeah, I'll make it a pick. That's fine. I guess that brings me to a question. So when I used MongoDB way back when, I actually didn't use Mongoose. I just used like the wrapper that MongoDB has. But when I did Rails, you know, obviously I'm going to use, you know, use all of that because there's like, that's that's the whole point of Rails, like all the magic that you get. So if you don't get the magic that you have in Rails with Mongoose, why use it? Because Mongoose offers a lot of functionality, kind of like, gives you kind of like a halfway point between those two, right? You don't necessarily okay. have to uh, be on one extreme or the other. Like I did a lot of development in Rails between 2010 and 2012. And I like Rails. It's a great project. Just my problem was always like, if I wanted to do something like not quite exactly what was documented, it yeah. was always a bit of a problem. Like the flexibility <laughs> wasn't there. And then the project would quickly go off the rails, unintended. <laughs> Great. I Be probably make that joke every you. single time I talk about Rails. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, no, Rails is a great project. It wasn't exactly like my favorite developer experience, but a lot of people are really productive with it. So lots of uh, lots of respect to Rails. No offense meant. Just Mongoose kind of gives you, it's not like, so Mongoose isn't a full kind of Rails replacement. It more focuses on like kind of like the active record part of Rails and handles a lot of the things that MongoDB either doesn't handle for you or didn't handle for you previously. So schema validation is a big one, making sure that the data that's going into MongoDB is validated and passed okay. into the correct types. For example, I guess the most basic example is MongoDB object IDs. So a, uh, so a MongoDB document has an underscore ID property that's its default uh, unique yeah. identifier. And an object ID in Node.js is an object. 
not a uh, yeah. it's not a string. It's not a number. It's uh, it's basically like a 24 byte buffer. Or is it 12? It's actually 12. And then the hex string representation is 24. I forget exactly. But that's beside the point. I remember and doing obviously. a lot of this by hand. It's coming back to me. <laughs> yeah. So like, but typically, you know, you, you're getting in some JSON data or like an object ID from a query string. It's going to be represented as 24 hex characters. So you need to be able to convert it into a uh, into an object ID object before you actually query it with MongoDB. Yep. And that becomes really annoying if you have an array of strings that look like object IDs. Oh, or yeah, I an totally object that contains deeper nested properties of arrays of nested objects yeah. that contain that contain ID properties. So Mongoose handles all that for you. You just define a schema once. You say that, okay, you know, my array is an array of objects that have a property test that is an object ID. And now every time you execute a query, whether it's whether you pass in a string, Mongoose will know and automatically convert my array dot zero dot test into an object ID and throw an error gonna, if you can't. I'm going to have to message my bootcamp instructor and ask him if he did this on purpose. Because <laughs> he's also oh, the man. one who forces to use Vim instead of a, you know, like ID. A real yeah. editor sounds like, like he uh, sounds <laughs> like he wanted you to do all the hard work and teach you, yeah. uh, teach you character. <laughs> yeah, that's almost it abuse, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. I mean, in my first job out of college, I spent two years writing C plus plus and vanilla Vim. That was pretty fun. <laughs> Just to like really get myself used to Vim. Whoa. So I mean, it was I, it was helpful because I had to deal with some huge files, but <laughs> I'm not going to get too deep into them weeds. So you're talking about some of the, I guess, things that are gotchas or are you know not as easily done if you just use the MongoJS driver. In general, what is the benefit of an ORM or an ODM? I mean, I've been doing Rails for years and years and years. I just actually got a full-time job writing Rails again. Nice. You know, and so I see some of the benefits, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your take is because there are definitely some nice things that some of these systems do for you or do you, yeah. depending on how you look at it. Yeah, schema cat. So schema validation is one thing. Plugins and the plugin ecosystem is another thing I'm a big fan of. Another thing that kind of um, I've been thinking a lot more about and working more with lately is middleware. Middleware is something that is like a very powerful paradigm that, that MongoDB or the MongoDB driver by itself doesn't provide. It's an instance of have you guys read anything about aspect oriented programming or anything like that before? Or does that ring a bell? It's been a while. Yeah. So middleware or just like the general practice of aspect-oriented programming is about being able to hook into function calls. So you kind of visualize your system as a sequence of function calls where you say you're calling like find one, insert one, insert many, all that. And you're able to kind of pipe into this stream of calls and make changes to the calls as they come in, make changes to the results of the calls, do some logging or side effects, things like that. So that's what middleware is all about. Middleware in Mongoose is about saying, okay, every time I save a user, I want to do this one thing. It's especially important with MongoDB because MongoDB is all... One of the main benefits of using MongoDB is denormalization or the ability to denormalize properties from, say... One idea is, say, if you want to render a user with all their blog posts or at least their top five most popular blog posts quickly, instead of fetching the user and their five most popular blog posts every time, 
you store an array of their most popular blog posts, like the name and the link to the blog post or whatever. That can kind of save you a bunch, that can make your app a lot faster and a lot more, a lot more reliable in the sense that you don't need to execute multiple queries in order to fetch the same page over and over again. So handling denormalization without update anomalies is something that middleware is really good for. So is that denormalization handled at query time or at storage time? Storage time. Okay. So my experience, I have quite a bit of experience with using Apache Solar, both as a search engine, as well as a data store, as a base data store for a website, for a large website. And so that's one of the things that you try to do with Solar is denormalize, get everything in one record so that you're not making multiple queries. You know, I got this, now I got this ID, now I got to go run another query and get that. I've seen people use solar in a relational structure, <laughs> believe it or not. But yeah, it's the same idea as I understand it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you try to get everything in one record so that when you query that record, everything's there and you're not making multiple queries or in the case of the database, well, multiple queries to your database. Yeah, similar to that. The, uh, the mnemonic or like the kind of, kind of catchphrase that I use for that is store what you query for or just store what you actually use. A good example for that is so user documents. If you want to display a user's top five blog posts and like do that every single time you display a user, whether it's their profile or whether you have a list view of users, then it's a good idea to store the uh, the user's blog posts or at least some of them on the user document. On the other hand, something that you should probably shouldn't be storing on the user document is their password hash. That's something that actually gets people a lot because you very rarely want to load a user with their password hash, usually unless people only do login. If anyone interacts with a user document that isn't in the user themselves, you should probably exclude the user's password hash from the, uh, from the user document because you're going to be constantly excluding it from the document anyway. NPM. <laughs> MV what? NPM. In the NPM? early days... In the early days of NPM, everything was in a CouchDB and all of the user password hashes were public, the entire, oh. the entire database. Wow. I was that a problem? Remember this. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if it really was a problem or not. It might have been because they might have been using something like MD5, but I don't, I don't know if Bitcoin was a big thing yet. So I don't know if we had like hash miners in the same way. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Just big, big companies have made this blunder. That's what I was, big organizations have made that blunder. Yeah, it's an easy blunder to make. It's just tempting to store it because it just seems like a user's password is so intuitively tied to the user. But the problem is that with the password, you explicitly want to hide it most of the time. And most of the time, you don't even, you don't need the user's password hash unless they're logging in. So that's like the one case where you, uh, you want to use the password hash. So it's, you're better off storing it in a separate collection if you never want it associated with the user. So then what does that query and that flow look like? Because I think that gives us an idea of how to think about some of these problems that Mongoose is going to solve for us. Yeah. So what Mongoose has is a function called populate. Populate is kind of like a, the equivalent of a left outer join in SQL. So it makes it easy for you to query a user and also throw in their password as well while having the password stored as a separate document that you don't, so you don't explicitly have to hide the password when you load the user most of the time, unless you explicitly opt into pulling the, uh, the password documents as well. So denormalization is something that's handled by middleware. 
that makes it so that you're embedding certain data that doesn't strictly belong to the user document in the user document. And then Populate helps you pull data from separate documents into the document for your application. So Populate ends up executing a separate query under the hood. That makes sense. So I guess you kind of explained you want to denormalize on things that you're not going to be pulling in every time. And, or maybe I got that reversed. I, I can never remember yeah, you which want one's to be, normalized uh, and which one's denormalized. Yeah, you want to kind of denormalize it up if you don't need that it you time. always want associated with a user. Like think of the things that like a user really needs, the things that you can't really represent a user in your system without that's beyond the user, things that you always want to display. So like, you know, password or not password, profile picture, blog posts, or some other sort of information that's associated with the user that you always want to display, links, things like that. And then, and then things like, say like their password or like all their blog posts as opposed to just the ones that you want to kind of highlight when you display their profile, those should also be separate documents. So I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about then is most popular blog posts that could change over time, right? So in a system like what we're talking about here, do you just, you know, say you have blog post visit count in another collection, do you just run a job periodically that updates that or? Yeah, you can do a job. You can also do kind of in theory, you can also make it middleware as well, where every time you increment the page views per month or something like that, or oh, the right. total page views collection, you can also go and update the user. And if you want to be very, very, uh, if you want to be like really up to date, but for the most part, these sort of like in SQL parlance, this would be called an update anomaly, where the actual most popular blog post doesn't line up with what's in the user collection. But most of the time, the difference is not too bad. And it's also something that you can fix later with a uh, with a job. So one of the one of the things I've also been thinking about more lately is like um, classifying kind of classifying potential problems in a system. And so this sort the inconsistency of oh I'm the user's most popular blog posts aren't quite up to date, but they're going to be updated in a day anyway. It's kind of like an easy problem to solve that's also not particularly pressing. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have issues like, oh, the system is experiencing degraded performance across the board, and I have no idea why. That's kind of like a hard, urgent problem. And you want to avoid the hard, urgent problems as much as humanly possible. Right. So what kinds of things are normal to come up in, you know, in these kinds of systems? You know, you're talking about, yeah, the hard, urgent problems like performance, for example. I mean, how do you go about identifying those and solving those? Because, I mean, I usually run into those when I either have some weird case or when I have like too many of something, right, that I'm querying or, you know, certain classes of performance issues or things like that. You know, how do you keep track of that stuff? And then how do you solve for it so that your users maybe don't even see it once they update? Yeah. So performance is one issue. Another issue that I frequently, that frequently comes up as a, as kind of like a hard and also urgent problem is just errors that prevent people from, uh, from doing their jobs. So that's another one that I think of there. But in terms of identifying performance issues, one of the things that I, that Mongoose helps with there is uh, Mongoose tries its best to kind of make like one operation the same as uh, one operation to MongoDB. And it kind of encourages you to avoid some potential pitfalls with MongoDB. So for example, uh, MongoDB has its own kind of equivalent to, not necessarily equivalent, but they have a operator called dollar lookup that lets you execute kind of like a left average join effectively as part of their aggregation framework. 
Stellar lookup works great, but it also runs into some performance issues sometimes. The issue that pops up with Stellar lookup is that uh, let's say you have a, uh, let's say you're querying for 10 users and you need to also look up those users' log posts, right? If you have an index miss on the query that's going from, that basically pulls an individual user's log post, you're going to get O of N squared performance degradation because dollar lookup under the hood executes a separate lookup for each of those 10 users through the blog post collection. So if you have uh, if you have 10 users, you're doing 10 scans through the blog post collection. If the blog post collection is huge, that can be uh, that can be a serious performance issue. And with Mongoose, instead of instead of globbing it together into one complex into one complex dollar lookup operation, that's a little bit hard to inspect. It makes it into two separate queries, and like have like two queries are easier to uh, to think about and reason about than one aggregation query, at least in my experience, because it's just um, a query. Either it does a table scan or it doesn't. It scans a certain number of documents. Makes it, uh, makes it a little bit easier to dig into. Does that make sense? So then you're bounded by the number of IDs that you want to look up at that time, right? Which would make sense because you're going to be paging data anyway. Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing, so with uh, Mongoose, if you're doing like loading one document at a time, Right now, it actually does do a separate query for each document that you pull out. We actually have a pull request open to improve that right now to make it so that we go through every batch that you load or that the MongoDB driver loads underneath the hood. So you don't really have to, um, you don't really have to execute a separate query for each individual user to fetch their blog posts. But if you're doing pagination, like loading 10 users at a time, that ends up being only one query for those 10 users blog posts. So I didn't quite understand. Can you or can you not have multiple IDs or multiple indexes so that lookups are fast? Yes, you can. The problem is, is like sometimes in production you miss indexes. <laughs> it's like, and other times you don't have indexes on a collection yet because the collection hasn't gotten big enough to justify the uh, justify the index cost. But then the potential is. If your dollar lookup, if you're doing a dollar lookup from a collection that is really big into that collection, then all of a sudden you can start having performance issues because now your performance is degrading as O of N squared. And this, I mean, that that's same problem with SQL databases. So no, yeah, it's, this this is just the nature of databases. Like you've got to figure out your indexes. Things are slow. Things like table scans, which in this case dollar sign lookup and indexes are good culprits to look for. Yeah, indexes are important. And if your indexes are perfect, then it's not really a problem. It's just an issue that I've run into at least a couple of times at my day job where we started using dollar lookup pretty early when it came out. It was released, I want to say MongoDB, I forget which version, 3.4, 3.6. So we started using it pretty early and um, made it kind of like our de facto choice for relationships. And then we quick, quickly within kind of like six to eight months decided that that was a bad idea, but still haven't changed it yet. <laughs> and we decided it was a bad idea precisely because we ran into a case where, okay, um, we were looking, we were querying into a collection that was indexed, but the dollar lookup was slow because it was, because the dollar lookup was looking into a collection that only had about, about a thousand or so documents. But because it was executing a table scan for multiple documents from the uh, from the local collection that the dollar lookup was looking up, uh, doc, or that the dollar lookup collection was using, I met that was not very well explained because we were scanning through a lot of documents in the local collection 
even though the foreign collection wasn't huge, the fact that we needed to scroll through a thousand or two thousand documents every time was uh, was causing some serious performance issues. Now, like normally in my experience, unless you're using Dollar Lookup, you really don't need indexes on a MongoDB collection if it has less than ten thousand documents. And probably if it has less than a hundred thousand, you can get away with it. It's just like in my mind, like a hundred thousand is like the cutoff where you should be using uh, where you should be using indexes. Well, unless you're on like ultra high end hardware or anything like that. My experience is just kind of uh, low to mid tier VMs, so your experience may differ. Well, what if, what about a case like you know, say we, let's go back to the user object. Like I've got an email which is ephemeral. You know, people change their email address, and then I've got a user ID which is permanent. Like no matter how many, you know, linked accounts I have through my email and Facebook and GitHub or whatever, I'm still going to have the same user ID. But it becomes very, very convenient to be able to look up a user by their Facebook ID or by their email or by their user ID or by their Google ID, etc. Or are you just saying like, no, it's really not that big of a deal. It's fine just to do table scans on all the other IDs. Oh, so in that case, email would be a candidate for denormalization. So like, let's say you want to search for blog posts by the author's email address. Their email is a candidate for denormalization because the assumption is that the user's email will change infrequently if it changes at all. So in many cases, you're not even allowed to change your email address on an account. You need to create a new one. And even if you do allow it, people don't change their email terribly frequently, or at least much less frequently than people read their well, blog it, posts. It's not, it's not, th- my point wasn't that people change their email address. My point is that there's multiple identifiers for a user. Like my Facebook ID is an identifier. My email address is an identifier. My GitHub ID is an identifier. You know, like when I click social sign in, like I've got five different options that I might sign in and it's all the same. It all resolves to the same account at the end. Or, and there's, there's other instances like that where you have more than one identifier and one might be public and another might be private or intersystem or pairwise, et cetera. I was just bringing up the use case of you do have multiple IDs for things. Yeah, exactly. In SQL, like I guess, kind of similar to MongoDB, there is uh, there is kind of a notion of like the primary identifier, though. So the primary identifier of the document, which is MongoDB, is the documents underscore ID. There's that's the one that you usually use for relationships. I guess you could, in theory, use the uh, the OAuth ID as well. That's just not something I do. I mean, in general, like the way that I like to structure it is like we just have an authentication method model or uh, authentication method collection that store. That's basically a map. Each document is a map from a user's ID, like the user primary identifier, to the uh, to the authentication uh, the OAuth provider. Like okay. let's say you know Facebook, so, Google. And then the uh, the OAuth ID and whatever OAuth info you need. So rather than having more indexes on a document, you just create more documents where those documents are just the one ID linking to the other ID. Yeah, that's what that I sense. like to do. Again, people don't like logging in is not the most frequent task when you're working with most apps. You're more uh, likely, yeah, 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 you're yeah. More likely just log in and then you do a bunch of other stuff that usually involves reading a lot of data. Right, right, right. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free 
by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So what are you working on now? Like what, what's coming in the next version of Mongoose? So right now, the, uh, the big thing that we're working on is officially supported TypeScript bindings. We don't have, uh, Mongoose doesn't have an index.d.ts file. And that's been, <laughs> that has been a source of a lot of frustration for a lot of people. So we're finally biting the bullet and uh, making that happen. That'll be our 5.11 release, along with a bunch of other smaller features. We just released version 5.10, which included have the big features there were, I want to say, uh, I forgot my blog posts already. Uh, let's see. Optimistic concurrency was a big one. Another big one was, let me actually just pull up the list real quick. What was the uh, What were the highlights? Uh, how did I forget the improved transaction support? I guess a more kind of a more generic topic to talk about would be uh, would be optimistic concurrency. Have the particulars of Mongoose transactions might not be as interesting. What do you? I think? was about to say, can can you get into that? I'm kind of curious about this. I don't think I've heard oh, it before. Optimistic concurrency? Nope, I don't think I have. Oh, okay. Let's say you have two copies of the same underlying document. So like, let's say you do find one and you load, let's say you load my user document. And then another say, request API handler also loads the same document. So now you have two request handlers that have kind of two copies of the same underlying yeah. document that's in the database. They both make some changes and then they both save the changes to the database, right? So they could in theory change the, change their, the document in incompatible ways. If you have validation that assumes that the document that you have in memory is the same as the document in your database, you get you can end up with an inconsistent state. So the yep. example that I like to use is let's say you're building like an Airbnb clone and you have basically you have like a home document, which is like a house that someone can rent, and you um, and you want people to basically put their submit their houses for approval because you want to make sure that the listing looks good. So you have a list of photos for the house, and you want to make sure that any house that's listed has at least two photos because otherwise it's just going to look bad. So how that could go badly in Mongoose is one request handler loads the uh, loads the document, changes the document status to approved, and then saves it. And then another, but in that in the meantime, another doc, another request handler came in and deleted all the photos. So both changes end up in the database at the same at the same time, but neither is aware of the other. So what optimistic concurrency does is it tracks an individual version on the document and throws an error if the document has changed underneath you when you're trying to save it. So if with if you're using optimistic concurrency, the one of the two saves would throw an error because the document changed underneath them. Okay. And the reason why this concurrency is optimistic is that it assumes that there will be very few conflicts because it's a bad user experience to have it throw an error. And if you yep. expect a lot of conflicts and a lot of contention, you might want to have something that like retries or repulls the data or something like okay. that. Okay. Optimistic okay. concurrency, it just assumes that there won't be very many conflicts. So when there is a conflict, we're just going to throw an error and call it a day. Okay. Yeah. So one okay. other thing you that guys I'm curious about. TypeScript? Yes, AJ loves TypeScript. He tells us that. <laughs> well, I, can, uh, I can imagine. Okay, AJ. Deno, Deno man. No, are, are you redoing Are you redoing Mongoose and TypeScript for, for Dino? No, not planning on it right now. Well, I maybe you need to change your plans. Maybe you need to get on the bus, man. Stop screwing around with that manzy pansy language JavaScript. Start fooling around with a real language like TypeScript that's got 
types and an interpreter that doesn't need source maps anymore. Yeah, source maps I don't like. I tried playing around with Dino. There were a few blockers that prevented me from using Mongoose with Dino, mostly just because of... I seem to remember something with like crypto or Node.js is crypto not working right with Dino. And the MongoDB driver relies very heavily on the um, Node.js built-in crypto library. So that just was, uh, wasn't was going to work unless I used a different MongoDB driver. Yeah. So that was uh, that was my problem right there. I, I got to check on what it's like today because 1.4 was just released yesterday. But yeah, as as of 1.0, the crypto libraries for Dino are not all complete yet. That That's one of the things that I, I found too. But goodness knows, I hope people don't bring node libraries over to Dino. That would just be, that That would destroy the whole, like the, the beauty of Dino is that it actually makes a decision on purpose to be TypeScript. And if you start bringing in JavaScript crap over to Dino and Dino just becomes a dumpster fire like Node, well, let's just stick with Node then. <laughs> Oh, okay. So what are uh, what are some of your concerns about Node? Are you are you asking in response to the yeah. dumpster fire thing? Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just in general uh, curious. I mean, like, it's, it's I mean, just a, Node has its problems. I don't disagree. I'm just curious, like what you think the most uh, the most we call it, egregious ones are. I think just a complete lack of leadership from the very beginning. Just a lot, a very, a very like lackadaisical, laissez-faire, like anything goes. Like we don't need to make decisions. The community will sort it out and. You know, even though it got investment and attention from Microsoft, it's never worked well on Windows. I'm glad to say that a bug that I opened like five years ago finally got closed this last month, which that was awesome, a Windows-related bug. The event loop would just drop if a very simple sequence of like you do a console log and an HTTP request and, and then open standard in. And if you did them in the right order, really simple, basic stuff. But if you did it in the right order, your program would just stop running, just just stopped. Anyway, it's just that you know, and, and it was never it was never a community of JavaScript developers. You know, from day one, the Ruby people stormed in and were like, "Screw JavaScript, we've got CoffeeScript." And then after that, it turned into other languages, and 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 then it turned into TypeScript, and and so just like it, I don't know. It, it was like it was like a baby that was thrown to the wolves no sooner than it was born, and so. It's it's not that I think that there's a problem with Node as a as a technology. Although I mean, obviously, its concurrency model is is limited. It works really great for most of what we're doing on single CPU deployments, as opposed to multiple CPU deployments. You know, so it 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 works really well in in most cases. But only being able to work on a single CPU obviously has limitations and makes it unfit for certain use cases. But really, it's just the I, I wish. I wish that it had strong leadership like Python or Go, where the smart people that knew they were smart made intelligent decisions on purpose, included things in the standard library on purpose, and, you know, just made it a really pleasurable language to work with. Whereas over time, it, it just became, it, it's become more difficult to work with rather than easier because of all the, it's the layers of extraction and complexity and stuff that's been added to it over time. So, I mean, I still use, I, I love working in Node myself. I, I write just plain vanilla JavaScript in it. And, you know, obviously that's not something everyone's going to do. But for me, that makes it pleasurable. And then I use Go for, for other things. 
but I, I feel like it's kind of a tangent to the episode there, but that's the answer to your question. No, that's a fair point. I did a lot of work with Go, I think around 2013, 2014. I actually didn't like Go very much. I thought JavaScript or Node was a lot better for a couple of reasons. Like number one, don't really like Go routine. Number two, I didn't really like how, at least in 2013, Go installed dependencies globally. So it made it difficult to have multiple projects with multiple incompatible versions of the same Go dependency. I also didn't like how, kind of how um, there wasn't like a standardized package source for packages. You kind of just needed to just need to download it from GitHub. I don't know. It's been a while since I worked with Go. But for one thing, I, one of the things I love most about JavaScript is, ironically enough, the concurrency model. Like, I think the event loop is good enough for the vast majority of use cases. And like, I have done like some pretty complex clustering algorithms in JavaScript. Oh, don't tell my college professors that they'll, uh, they'll have a heart attack. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of those things where like, okay, you know, you're, if you're doing a complex calculation, you just need to remember to await every once in a while to basically yield on, yield on the main thread and let other stuff do work. <laughs> So I, I don't want to take up any more time on this other than to dispel one common myth because everybody had this problem that worked with Go in the early days back before the package management. And yes, it sucked, but it is absolutely the best thing that exists out there today. There is no package management system that is better than Go. And I will, I'll link to a video as one of the picks. Uh, Go, I think it's Go with versions. And I'd advise you to take a look at it. It is the most intelligent design ever around package management. It took them a long time to get there. But once they did, it's bar none. It is absolutely the best. I'll take a look. I mean, one of the things that I really liked about Go, unrelated to that, that I thought was really well designed, was their uh, their JSON unmarshalling support. I'm not sure if that's changed since 2013 because I haven't really touched Go in like four or five years. But that was one thing that I found kind of really delightful in Go. And I have like written a couple of JavaScript libraries to kind of simulate that. And to a large extent, Mongoose can do things like that, but it's not quite as good. Or the syntax isn't quite as neat as Go's. So really big fan of Go's JSON on marshalling. All right. Well, I'm going to push this over the edge to picks unless there's something else that we want to dive into here. Nothing. Uh, nothing for me. All right. I didn't hear anyone else pipe up. So let's go ahead and do some picks. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. AJ, why don't you just start us off with the picks? All right. So I've got an overload that's accumulated. So I'm just going to have to run through some here. GraphQL. It is curl for GraphQL. I haven't actually used it that much myself. Well, I haven't used it at all yet. I just, I was looking for something like it after working with GraphQL Playground, I was like, there's got to be something, you know, that, that is more like curl. And it's, I just thought the name GraphQRL would be exactly what someone would call it. And so it is. Hasura has made GraphQRL and it gives you, I, I don't think people understand how awesome the terminal is and how great the auto-completion can be. And it's a model for what the web should be like. And I mean that in all seriousness. I wish more web pages worked as well as great command line apps. 
But yeah, so GraphQRL, that's with Q-U-R-L for those that didn't get to catch that. Also, we've been having these what I call micro power outages. I think the technical term might be brownout, but it's just all summer long. Power goes out for like a second. And I don't know what it is, if it had been the heat when we were having like 100 degree heat waves or whatever. But then we had a storm come through last week and the power was going out like every 15 minutes to an hour for several hours. So I finally got myself an APC UPS, just a cheap one. It was like 60 bucks for my iMac. Um, and it has it has USB, so it plugs in and then you can go into the power settings and then a new option magically appears that is UPS settings and, and you can go in and, and have it so that if you've got some sort of desktop computer, and it works with Windows too, of course, it has like special driver software with a Mac, no driver needed. It's just plug and play. So it's an APC UPS and, and I'll link to that. It was cheap, 60 bucks and last like 20 minutes or something. I mean, it was, it was basically the smallest amount of time that something can last that has a USB port. And then I picked up another one for the mount, the router, the, the modem and the, and the access point, which is just a, a cyber power. And it does not have like the, U, the USB stuff and it only lasts like five or 10 minutes in it, but it was 40 bucks. So for a hundred bucks now, I don't have to worry about these little micro power outages that are happening all the time. Then I'm also gonna pick so Google Lighthouse overstepped, but in a way that I think was necessary. So, you know, a lot of these companies have normalized this problematic behavior of creating large, huge bundled libraries. And Google specifically picked on Moment.js and gave them the thumbs down. So if you use Google Lighthouse, Moment.js is recommended as do not use. And then it recommends other libraries instead, which I think like that's... Ugh. That's that feels kind of ooh, you know. And then yeah, I think that's, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think I saw this morning that Moment actually like put a note on their their homepage that Moment is now done, quote unquote. Yeah, deprecated like legacy maintenance mode. Yeah, but so here's the thing: like on the one hand, I think that it was an overstepping of bounds, but on the other hand, I think that they kind of created this problem with you know stuff like. Angular, for example, where it's like, hey, let's include two megabytes of JavaScript on the page. Not kidding, like two megabytes, right? And so I think for them to kind of, I so I feel good and bad about it at the same time. But that was, I think that the result will be good. Although I think that, you know, interpersonally it's bad. I think that the, the result of having, yeah, people being more conscientious about the size of their web page and the complexity of their bundles will I think it will end up having benefits overall, although it does make me cringe and feel kind of, you know, feels dirty to, to have Google do that. But whatever. I'm what I found kind of most frustrating about that, I it also kind of gave me the heebie jeebies, even though I'm like, okay, like I understand why people don't want to use moment. My thought there was though that just like, you know, the the cost of save the savings that you get from switching from Moment to Luxon is very small compared to the benefits that you get from switching from React to Preact, at least by default with the default Webpack configs. So like why pick on Moment as opposed to say React or Angular? That kind of was what felt a little like uh, disingenuous to me. And I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. So I got last two and then I've whittled down most of this mountain I've been building up, Frog Chess is like checkers, but kind of with a twist. It's it's only got two rules. You have to jump a frog every turn or you lose. So you have to jump a frog every turn or you lose. And if you jump out of bounds as your last jump, then that frog dies. 
And I, I think those are the, the only two rules. Well, and then every jump is jumping over one adjacent frog. You can't move one square over. You have to jump over a frog. And then that frog, of course, is removed from the board. But anyway, frog chess, it's like checkers, but it's an interesting spin. The rules are a little bit more, it's not the rules are more sophisticated, but the strategy becomes more sophisticated by Binary Coco. Love Binary Coco. They have tons of great physical games as well as some digital games. So check them out. And then last but not least, I finally figured out a way to get Windows subsystem for Linux to install from the command line so that you don't, because you know, the old saying, a picture costs a thousand words. It is so difficult to explain to somebody how to go through a bunch of different menu systems and da, 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 da. It was not... The result is simple. It's like ends up being five different PowerShell commands and you have to reboot in between them because Windows, you still can't complete an installation of something without the prior thing being in. You can't just say, okay, install all these things, then reboot. No, you have to install half of them, reboot, install the other half, whatever. But so I've got that single command and a cheat sheet for how it works in case you want to replicate it and integrate it into your own system of sorts up on webinstall.dev slash WSL. So hopefully next time you're trying to explain to somebody how to get Linux on their Windows computer, rather than linking them to six different blog posts with 400 pictures and lots of confusing things, you can just be like, copy and paste this line, put it in the terminal, reboot, copy and paste it again, you're done. You've got Linux installed. Now you can access it from the start menu. If you want some inspiration for using WSL, Scott Hanselman gave a really great talk on JSLA last month about that. It was really good. And just look up one of his talks on WSL. He really puts on a great live coding show. I will do it. Thank you. Nice. All right. Amy, what are your picks? Okay. I'm going to go with another more DevOpsy kind of thing since that's a lot of my world now. But I I'm always love like different people who do like code cartoons and stuff like that. I think this girl is a endeavorer at Google, but she's called herself the Cloud Girl. And she has basically like different cartoons for all the different services in uh, GCP, which is a Google Cloud platform. So pretty cool. I like it. And that's going to be it for me. All right. Steve, what are your picks? First of all, I want to say, uh, AJ, a picture is worth a thousand words. It doesn't cost a thousand words. Minor difference. Unless you're writing documentation. Yes. Well, then it costs you more than a thousand words, probably. <laughs> it's worth a thousand words to the people reading it, but it probably costs you about 10,000 in cuss words, right? Anyway, so hopefully this will still be a little bit relevant, or maybe not by the time this episode comes out. But as of mid-September here in Oregon, half of our state is burning down. We've had some pretty significant wildfires through Clackamas County, Marion County, and down farther south. We're like number one on the feds list of important fires in the region. Started out on Labor Day, actually, we had some incredibly dry, hot winds. And within about two or three hours, we had three big fires, three or four big fires take off and just go nuts. I belong to one of the fire districts and was out on the front lines for probably three days, uh, parts of three days helping fight. So there is a nonprofit that's associated with our fire district here in Clackamas County called the Clackamas Emergency Services Foundation. And I created a a website for them using Next. And I blogged about it on dev.to. And one of the things that we're doing is we have a PayPal option on there. It's a donate button to donate. And there's a specific option for wildfire relief. There's been, this will go to the foundation and we distribute them in terms of supplies and hotels and, you know, any number of ways to help out the community. 
We've got right now, the number just went down to eight dead in the state and probably about 50 people unaccounted for. We burned close to 900,000 acres in a week, which is more than double the annual amount of acreage burned. And this is just, it's unprecedented in our state, the, the number and the strength of an acreage of wildfires burned. So my pick is just our little website, CESF. Clackamas Emergency Services Foundation.us. A little donate button if you want to donate. I'm sure by the time this comes out, we'll still be looking for funds to help those around of us, those around us in our community that have been displaced and affected by the wildfires. That's really terrible. And yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for your service. And I really, I really admire your bravery. That's <laughs> it's uh, it's easy to get on the podcast, but it's hard to go fight uh hard to go out and fight a real live wildfire. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, that first night was absolutely nuts. Monday night, I was on between 6 p.m. and 3 a.m. By the time I got 3 a.m., I was on my fourth fire. Three of them we'd put out, and the fourth one turned out to be one of the bigger ones that took a number of days to, to get control of. And that was just, you know, our part of the state. So, yeah, there's a lot of guys that have been out there a lot longer, you know, a week at a time, you know, 72, 100 hours at a time. And that and it made it more challenging because you have a lot of resources out in the wildfires, but you still had fires in town. And so we had a lot of guys that were on fires with much less, much fewer resources than normally for a house fire or, a, you know, apartment fire or something like that. So we've, with the federal help and, and state help from the state fire marshal that we've gotten in since Wednesday, it's allowed us to go back and, and go back to our base, you know, coverage as there's more resources helping. But it, it took a few days to get help in just because everybody was already stretched so thin anyway, especially with what's going on in Northern and Southern California and their fires down there. Yeah, that fire stuff is nuts. Well, hopefully, hopefully the the air gets better and everybody stays safe. Yeah, we had it's so smoky right now that the air index was off the charts. I mean, they're saying just don't go outside. I can go outside and be outside for a while, and my smoke clothes will smell like smoke. And we had fortunately the weather's cooled down. We really haven't gotten any wind, unfortunately, to blow the smoke out. We're supposed to get some rain here hopefully soon. But after the first couple of days, then we got this nice inversion. So these clouds came down and sat on top of all the smoke and kept everything in, at least in, in the valley area here. So it's starting to get a little better. And hopefully over the next few days, things will go back to normal. But even a lot of businesses like restaurants and stuff have closed down just because the smoke's so bad. You don't even want to go outside because it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Well, I'm going to throw in some picks. So one thing that I've been working on, this is podcasting related more than programming related, is the Podcast Growth Summit. It's going to be held the second week of November. It's going to be free and then you can buy an all-access pass if you want to get access to the, the videos after the day of release, basically. So each day, videos will go up for 24 hours and then they'll be taken down unless you buy the pass. I'm looking to do something very similar for Most Valuable Dev. So if you're interested in either of those, Most Valuable Dev is going to be focused more along the lines of, you know, if you're a junior to mid-level or maybe even a senior, some seniors run into this too, where you're competent at your job, you're, you know, you're comfortable there, but you're not quite sure what you need to be doing in order to move ahead to the next thing. So it may be, I don't know what to learn next, or it could be, you know, how do I, you know, take my career to the next level? You know, should I be speaking at users groups or speaking at conferences or, you know, doing any number of other things? I'm going to be bringing in a number of experts to talk about their journeys through a lot of that and what they do to get past that, right? And I'm just going to do a bunch of interviews and we'll just post them as part of the deal. So anyway, those are going to be at podcastplaybook.co and mostvaluable.dev. And then I mentioned the Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson. 
And the next book is actually coming out next month. So keep an eye out yep. for that. They they were going to do a big launch party here in Salt Lake. And with COVID, I think they canceled it. So that was my chance to meet Brandon Sanderson. Anyway, good friend of mine was going to be running part of that live event. So anyway, next one, I guess. Usually when he does a new book, he does a launch party here in Utah because he lives here. So And those are well worth going to. They're fun. So anyway, I'm going to shout out about that. And then, yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to really shout out about. I did start a full-time job to kind of pay the bills around here, but we are still looking for sponsors on some of the shows and things like that. So if you have any ideas, feel free to reach out to me at chuck at devchat.tv. And yeah, with that, we'll let Val Valeri do some picks. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. So I guess number one pick, I just came out with a new ebook called Mastering Mongoose. I took about eight years of experience building apps with Mongoose and about six years of experience as a maintainer and kind of distilled it into 170 pages. Took careful time to make some just opinionated enough in terms of like which Mongoose fundamentals are important and sufficiently unopinionated on which uh, which web server framework or front-end framework you should use. So check it out. There's a little discount for JavaScript Java listeners. Link should be with the picks. I guess second pick, uh, related to our discussion about uh, about Golang and Go on marshalling. There's a uh, there's a small uh, library that I wrote called Archetype. That this is what Booster uses for uh, for validating all data coming into our API, and it does something inspired by or it works kind of similar to Go's on marshalling, or at least it's the closest thing I've seen in JavaScript to Go's on marshalling. It also has kind of uh, Mongoose-inspired syntax, so check it out. And finally, I've been, uh, third pick, I've been reading uh, Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon this summer. It's a, it's a long book, but it is, uh, it is a very fun read. A lot of, uh, a lot of hilarious jokes, a lot of, uh, and a lot of really cool commentary on, uh, on cryptocurrency, so worth checking out if you uh, if you have a few months to kill. Nice. And Valeria, if people want to connect with you, where do they find you? You can find me at, on Twitter. Uh, let's see here, at code underscore barbarian. You can also follow Mongoose on Twitter at mongoosejs. Our website is mongoosejs.com. And you can also find my JavaScript tutorials on masteringjs.io. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks again for coming and talking to us. Oh, always, uh, always great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always uh, it's always great to chat with you guys. Amy's always Amy's always great. AJ always keeps me on my toes. <laughs> okay, I was like, please, please pick other people. <laughs> Thank you. <though. laughs> yeah, AJ always fun uh, always fun debating with you. I know we disagree on quite a number of things, but I really respect your opinions, and uh, you always uh, you always have interesting stuff for me to look at. Thanks. I don't feel like we disagree that much. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the world's biggest TypeScript fan or Go fan or Dino fan. So oh, I think I, I'm not, I'm not things, a but. big TypeScript fan myself, but I, I'm a big fan that Dino has chosen a side and something to stick with. That's, yeah. I think that it's better to, to have a platform that actually supports its language a hundred percent and you know and sticks to it rather than have a platform that's kind of willy-nilly and the, the whole source map thing yeah so I, I i think that go is much better than typescript as far as type languages go but i think that typescript is i'm glad that dino uses typescript i think it's a new yeah. opportunity i think it could move the web forward oh hopefully next time i'm on we'll have a chance to debate something like that <laughs> but after we get to see a little bit more of where Dino goes in the near future, following closely as and, well. And I call Node a dumpster fire with all the love in my heart. <laughs> 
I love that. All right, we should just wrap it up here. Till next time, folks. Max out. Bye. Bye, everyone. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.